Hey, it's E.B. Moss, and this is Season 2, finally, of my passion project podcast, It's Quite a Living. This is about my friends in high places who are the ones who can really say, it's quite a living, when a lot of us can just say, "Mm, it's a living. But nonetheless, we can all live quite a life, and that's what these folks really represent. They're people who grab the world with all the gusto they can and have succeeded in various industries, whether they are a media executive in the arts or acting or in politics. And season two kicks off with Jarl Mohn. He was my boss at Entertainment Television, which he founded, and then retired in 2019 as the CEO of NPR. These days you can find him climbing mountains or supporting the arts. But Jarl, in this episode, also talks about his experience with being in foster care. May is National Foster Care Month, so I'll leave some show notes about how to support foster youth, regardless of whether it's the month of May or beyond. And I encourage you to read a memoir by David Ambrose. It's called A Place Called Home. So here's to those who have quite a living or are just enjoying quite the life. Yarl Moan, I can't believe I'm seeing you now. It's it's um, sort of an out-of-body experience for me. Um, thank you in advance. I can't imagine there's anybody in the media marketing or advertising industry who doesn't know who you are, but I want to start with a little top line, and we're going to end up at the toes. Yes, dear <laughs> listeners, I, I truly mean the toes. So stay tuned for the payoff of what I'm talking about. But I want to preface this all by saying that you were my first boss in the cable industry. You started entertainment television. That was back in the... Yep, Greg Kinnear and the Howard Stern days. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. But what I'd love is for you to maybe share your headlines. Well, I, you know, I began my career as a disc jockey when I was 15 years old. Um, and I worked at a lot of radio stations. I ended up ultimately uh, in New York at WNBC doing afternoons. That's when I was 25. Then I shifted, got into the programming side of the business uh, did that for a number of years at a number of stations, became a general manager. Then I bought some radio stations with some people I used to work with, bought an AM FM in El Paso, Texas, and then some in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and then one of the people I knew from the radio business, Bob Pittman, who I had worked with at WNBC, he hired me along with Tom Preston at uh, MTV and VH1. So I got into the cable TV business then. In 1986, I was there for about four years and then moved to Los Angeles from New York and we created E! Entertainment Television. And I was there for nine years. That's when we had a chance to work together. Um, And I did a a stint with John Malone at Liberty Media. I was CEO of a company for him called Liberty Digital, which was used to invest in internet companies and some interactive uh, companies. Did that for four years, and then I did uh, venture capital, early stage angel investing for myself for about 16. And then I had the opportunity to go back into radio for a a very important passion project. I love public radio. I had been involved in public radio in Los Angeles as a board member of KPCC, but uh, I had the opportunity to become 
CEO of NPR nationally. And I moved to Washington in 2014 to do that for about six years. That's the career in a nutshell. Wow. Good bookends. But something that you shared with me, because I always like to ask what my guests would like to talk about. And one of the things that you mentioned was that you definitely did not come from Easy Street. I, you know, I <laughs> tend to sing to my guests, so <laughs> as Annie might sing. Um, uh-huh. So you mentioned that you had been in a group home in foster care, and I'd love to hear how you evolved from that because you were in good company with actually people like Steve Jobs and Tiffany Haddish who've been in foster care. Mm. Uh, you know, it was really unfortunate. It was a very difficult thing to experience. I spend some time with foster youth and young adults in Los Angeles County now and have a chance to talk to a number of them. Um, almost every one of them using different language want to know how we survived our PTSD or our trauma. Um, and it was very traumatic for me, but I think a lot of what I did was kind of delusional. Um, I I really, I don't know that a mental health professional would recommend my approach, but um, that's how I fell in love with radio. I hated my existence in that uh, children's home so much. I discovered radio and listened to it nonstop and fantasized about being on the radio and being one of those cool disc jockeys. And that's kind of what my motivation was. So when I got out of the children's home, When I was 15, I uh, had a chance to go to engineering school, get my FCC license and begin working at a radio station. But it was a number of years there. My two sisters were in the same institution that I was. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was not a happy time. (laughs) We came from a very um, kind of uh, permissive home where we could kind of do whatever we wanted to do. And the children's Mm -hmm. home was highly regimented, almost to the point of being militaristic. That's probably a bit strong, but um, I don't I don't know that I've ever talked to anybody that uh, had a good time that enjoyed it. No. Uh, And yet it clearly out of necessity gave you some amazing life skills. And I'm not surprised to hear that about radio because, you know, of course, we talk about it as theater of the mind. And so that escapism and that being able to picture things um, that -hmm. makes a lot of sense. I had an eye-opening experience about that as well, reading a book by a man who actually works at Amazon now, so another media industry person who overcame similar challenges. His name is David Ambrose, and I'm going to add a link to the show notes to his book about living in foster care and how we all need to support youth so much better and try to change things in the world. His book is called A Place Called Home. So, Jarl, I'm glad that you were able to extract some good things out of that experience and and hopefully others will empathize with that and extract more with your words of wisdom well thank you um you know little known fact also is when you were my ceo at e my very first cable conference. I was a a marketing manager and you were the CEO and you were conducting a meeting with a man whose last name was familiar to me. Now, I had lost my mom at a very young age, so I didn't have a lot of knowledge about my family background on, on that side. 
and I interrupted your meeting in my first cable show, and I said, pardon me, Joel Rudish. And he was uh, sort of a big cheese in the uh, Southeast cable industry. I don't know if you remember this. I said, but my mother's maiden name was Rudish. And he said to me, Laitzela's granddaughter from Washington Heights? And I said, yes. Joel's hobby was genealogy and ancestry. So Mm -hmm. he faxed me back in the day a 43-page family tree. So... (laughs) The That's family great. connection and, and the yeah. need for roots is uh, a through yeah. line, as is my background in radio with yours. Um, so I promised to go from how you overcame your roots and your evolution to um, your more current passions. But I want to also talk about the value of good content marketing as humanizing executives. And here's another little walk down memory lane. I don't think you need any lessons in humanizing. Yarl, I knew you as Lee Masters, your radio name. Right. You would regularly walk the halls of e-entertainment television, stopping and chatting with every employee every day. And I can't even tell you, those those purple metal filing cabinets, I remember them. Not about those years, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that meant the world to everyone. And that was like 25 years ago. But do you know that there's still an employee Facebook group and reunions of past e-employees? So you you really created another family for us. Well, thank you. You know, one of the reasons I like walking the hallways there and other places uh, I've worked is it more often than not, it's a lot more fun (laughs) than some of the things that I might have been doing in my office. But also, uh-huh. at every company I, I worked at, found I learned a lot more about what was happening in the company by just walking the halls mm-hmm. and asking, what are you working on? What's interesting? What are you getting the biggest kick out of? What are the challenges? And in doing that every day, I don't know that any one conversation led to anything major, but... Uh, cumulatively, I think there was a lot of information for me and it informed me and really helped me do my job. And it was also a great deal of fun. It made work a lot more playful for me. Yeah. And we always learn from our coworkers and, you know, it has to be top down. So um, you made it very horizontal for us and very accessible. In the previous episode I did of Insider Interviews was with our department coordinator, Darren G. Davis, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know what he's up to, but he now runs a very successful comic book company called Tidal Wave, Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're known for their biographical graphic novels like on Michelle Obama and Dolly Parton, and he just did one on uh, one of your favorites, Dave Grohl. So um, (laughs) those were our roots. That's fabulous. But back to you, I want to talk about at NPR, how you kind of continued that walk the hall approach, but you did it from the skies and the road. Tell us about, tell us about visiting NPR stations. Well, as I mentioned before, I tried to do that everywhere. But when I began at NPR, uh, one of my good friends, Michael Govan, who is director of LA County Museum of Art, also a pilot, and he has a single engine bonanza that he flies. He said, why don't we fly from the West Coast to the East Coast and 
visit uh, small NPR stations that no one from NPR has ever been to. And I said, wow, what a great idea. I'm often credited with this idea. It was actually Michael's. We probably hit 15, 17 stations in that 10-day period of time and made a lot of friends and got to meet the people that work at these stations and got to meet donors and listeners um, and have some great local food. And that was in 2014 when I started. 2016, uh, I had never uh, driven across the country, and that's kind of a rite of passage for a lot of people. Yeah. And so I drove from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, uh, and I allowed myself three weeks, and I drove through the South, and I did the same thing visiting probably 20 or more radio stations. So we had a chance to be out in the field and meet with people and uh, meet the stations, meet the staffs, program directors, news directors, got to meet listeners, donors. Um, and it was a it was a great educational experience for me in addition to being probably fun. Yes. And so you listened to a lot of radio, I'm sure, while you were driving across country. Yeah, a lot of people have written off all of radio, not just AM. I do believe, and one of the reasons I love NPR and one of the reasons I do love public radio is I really think that um, it's providing something that you can't get anywhere else. Even if you're in a major market city, you can be listening to, you know, a traditional news station that gives you traffic and weather on the ones, let's say. But in terms of, you know, news analysis, uh, stories, you know, really audio essays on what's going on and explaining not just not just saying here are the facts, here's what's happened, but providing background, some context and so forth. Um, and storytelling, I think, yeah. is something that's not available anywhere else. And so I have, I'm, a, I'm very bullish on public radio over a long period of time because I just don't think there's anything like it. I do think a lot of the music formats are under siege from Spotify mm -hmm. and from, from satellite radio. Now, the problem is if a lot of people are deserting the broadcast band because of music, your, your pool of available listeners for an NPR station starts to decline. But I think they're going to hang in a lot longer than anybody else. Uh, and I know that you've done your part to make sure that NPR is not going anywhere either. You, for your recent birthday, bequeathed every single one of the 251 stations with membership in them. And you got a mug from each one. You're Instagram famous for that now. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And, you know, whenever we have people over, of all the things that we show them uh, in the house, the thing that is the most interesting and fun for them is the shelving <laughs> of the NPR bugs. People get a big kick out of it. Well, you know, I know that you are a big art collector, so the fact that the NPR mugs are one of the big draws is, <laughs> is quite a statement. Um, let's stay with um, media for just a second longer because we've talked a lot about audio. Uh, I'm a big consumer of traditional, traditional media, meaning uh, motion pictures, television, um, television programming. I don't watch much broadcast television anymore. I don't watch any linear television, maybe one or two shows a week. The rest are things I watch mm -hmm. in streaming. And, you know, one of the number one topics of conversations at almost every dinner party is, what are you watching? And 
everybody is yeah. exchanging their lists of, you know, what am I seeing on Netflix? What am I, did you see Kaleidoscope on Netflix? The Chestnut Man on Netflix, Echo 3 on Apple TV, or have you watched Slow Horses? And I don't presume that my, my circle of friends is representative of the world, but I think a lot of people are looking at content. The challenge, of course, is how many of these services can you subscribe to? Um, you know, people aren't going to subscribe to all of them. So that's going to be a challenge. But I always believe, regardless of what the medium is, whether it's an audio or a visual, whether it's broadcast radio, whether it's a podcast, whether it's broadcast television, whether it's streaming, um, whether it's on demand, I think when everything is said and done, really good content wins. Good point. Um, you know, I did a couple of interviews with NPR's CMO, Michael Smith, um, who's been working hard to up the diversity and representation across um, NPR's content and its constituents. And that brings us closer to what you're doing now and social responsibility and things like that. Do you think that the media industry has made strides in the past few years in terms of improved DEI and what do you think are the number one or two action steps that any media company or service can really do to help um, legitimize its brand purpose or good DEI? Mm -hmm. um, I'm certainly not an expert on this. I think it's a hugely important topic for everybody, not just media companies. It's an issue for museums. Museums are questioning, um, all of them are questioning this uh, historical perspective on white European males uh, in their collection. And why have women been ignored? Why have people of color been ignored for so long? It's a, it's a huge issue in the art world. Although the art world, I think, is the museums aren't making as much progress as the, uh, as the art world is and the galleries are. And some of the new contemporary museums that are doing a much better job of doing exhibitions um, from women and people of color. But I do think most organizations, certainly in the arts, and I think many, many organizations are, um, are really trying, and some of them are doing better than others, but I don't think it's an easy task. Hey, well, onward, I, I guess. You teed me up pretty well to talk about your life's purpose these days, um, aside from mountain biking and crossword puzzles. You're still making headlines, but now it's really more in the art world. And I, I'm so floored by how your philanthropy has evolved. And I'd love for you to talk about the land grant and what you and your wife, Pamela, have bequeathed to uh, LA artists. Mm. Well, thank you. Um, it, it started kind of organically. We've had the Family Foundation for 25 years, say, and it's been a learning experience from, you know, writing many, many, many small and moderate sized checks to then figuring out, well, we really want to have impact. So we really should probably write fewer checks, but write bigger checks and really get behind mm -hmm. projects uh, and trying to figure out what we what we really believe in. So we really feel we can do a lot more good if we focus on one area, we live in the largest county in the United States, which is LA County. So there's a lot going on here. There are a lot of issues and problems here, but there are also some beautiful things and some beautiful opportunities. So we're focused on a handful of things primarily. I'd say 85% of what we do is LA County 
and it's around social justice. Um, so, of course, the ACLU, Southern California, is a, is a big one. I was chair there for 13 years, so we really believe in civil liberties and the rights of people that really don't have the kind of representation that they should. Uh, foster youth, because of my background, uh, we're, we're really in the, the early, early stages of figuring out how we're going to work with that. We're focusing even more on what are called transition age youth, which is 18 to 24, because a lot of the system kind of ends for them when they get out of high school. And so we think there's an opportunity there for 18 to 24 year olds in LA County. Um, the arts is really uh, important to me. And again, we've narrowed the focus to emerging artists who live and work in Los Angeles County. So the land grants, the Moan land grants you talked about is something we just announced with LA Nomadic Division which does public art. We're going to do grants for 20 emerging artists uh, that live and work in LA over the next five years. They have to not have any major institution or gallery representation. And we just announced the first recipients and they're going to do public art. They're each going to create works that will be in their neighborhoods, publicly available, not in a museum, not in a gallery, that will speak to the people and the issues of that community. We also have been involved for, we're in year 11 of the Hammer Museum's Made in LA exhibition. We're a major underwriter for that. We have a number of awards, the Mona Award. We have three of them that we give away to LA emerging artists or under-recognized LA artists. And we've also been involved with another public not-for-profit space called LAX Art. And the other one, of course, is public radio locally here in Los Angeles with KPCC, where I've been affiliated for many, many, many years. Uh, but we also support KCRW, the other NPR station, and deeply engaged with NPR uh, nationally. And then the other 15%, we sprinkle um, into kind of ad hoc things that pop up. Phenomenal. Great ways to give back. Mm -hmm. But there was a story I read about mounting a three and a half ton piece of art on your wall. Can you talk a little bit more about some of your personal collection and and that piece in particular? Well, that one, it's actually not on the wall. It is the wall. Ah. Um, we It's oh, a, okay. uh, Michael Heiser, who some people may have seen recently. The New York Times did an amazing spread. I've never seen their coverage of any artist like this. He's been working on a project in the middle of Nevada called City, which is a sculpture in the middle of the desert, a mile and a half long. And it is basically a city made of concrete. Uh, it looks like some kind of mashup between Mayan culture and aliens who have landed. Um, but he also- and Christo, does, maybe. Uh, not as flashy. This is very austere okay. and minimal. I got a work of Heiser's. It's a boulder. That, it's called Scoria. It's a boulder from Northern California. It weighs three and a quarter tons. It's in a court and steel case. Uh, and uh, it, we had to remove an entire exterior wall of the house, reinforce with steel, <laughs> dig down four feet, put in rebar and industrial concrete, let it cure for two weeks. Then we closed off our street for three hours, had it craned over the wall and then slid into position and they drywalled around it. So um, I have this three and a quarter. I'm actually looking at it right now. It's in my office. And it is the only Michael Heiser 
rock inside a residence in the world. He has them in museums. He has them one in a, a Hyatt in Seattle. And there, uh, many people have his works outside. But I saw one of his works. They're jokingly called Rock in a Box uh, at Dia Beacon in New York. And I fell in love with it. And uh, it makes no sense at all. It costs a fortune to install. It'll cost a fortune <laughs> to get rid of it. Nobody will want to buy it from me. Uh, but it makes me really happy. Love art, and I find art really inspiring. And I encourage anybody, uh, regardless of how they feel about art, try to spend some time with it because it really does open up different neural pathways. I always have found if I'm stuck creatively on something, that if I go to a museum and I look at art, I don't look at a piece of art and go, oh, that makes me think of this. It just it frees up my mind. I think art is beautiful that way. And I'm not just talking about the visual arts. I'm talking about film. I'm talking about music. I'm talking about dance. Um, there are beautiful things happening in culture everywhere. And this is going to sound odd, but I, I've said it quite often. If I'm really stuck, I like to go look at art that I don't like. I like to look at art that I don't understand. I like to look at art that the critics uh, have said great things about, but for whatever reason, doesn't appeal to me. Because what is it that the people that are far better educated than I am on this subject see in it that I don't see in it? And there really must be something there. I find it, it, it opens up my mind. If not at that moment, it does later. So my pro tip for anybody that is in anything creative or has to do problem solving, go to museums regularly and look at stuff and go out of your way to look at things that you might not like. It takes a little patience, but Great. for me, it's been it's been uh, deeply rewarding. Well, I think that you also just answered um, one of the rationales for why we need more inclusion and um, more voices in media. If I can bring it full circle for a minute, because looking at something that you're not used to or that doesn't necessarily resonate with you could illuminate new ideas for you. And it amplifies fresh voices. Um, I promised that we would bring it from the head to the toes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, now that you're retired, and you're purging some old things, you bequeathed some art to your friends in social media, and anyone who requested this incredible piece of art from you would receive them at no charge with a handwritten note, which you like to do to personalize things. So everybody, I would like to share <laughs> the, the Jarl Moan faces on socks. Oh, I, I, I showed you the dirty side, but you can see they're well-worn and well-loved. And for those who are just listening to the audio version of this, these are socks that had Jarl's face when he was more of a Lee Masters groovy DJ and his more recent executive face uh, when he was at NPR, and they were premiums on socks, which happened to be very well-made, by the way. A nice gauge. The toes are seamless. I wear them all the time. So I have your face on my feet all the time, Jarl. <laughs> Thank you. It, it, the story behind those is quite funny. I don't want anybody to think I actually had socks made with my face on them. I, I got a text one morning 
from the president of KCRW, which is, you know, one of the NPR stations here in LA. She was at the NPR headquarters waiting for a board meeting and working at one of the um, temporary desks. And there was a big box on the desk and she was just curious. She opened it up and all these socks were in there with my picture on it. And she texted me a photograph of these. And she said, what are these? And I said, Jennifer, I have absolutely no idea. You've got to be kidding me. This is hilarious. Why would there be socks with my face on them at NPR? I'd been gone two and a half years at that point. What in the world? And so I said, can you find out? You're there. Why don't you ask? She asked around about an hour later. She sent me a note and she said, they had been left over from when I was leaving NPR. They were going to have this joke, which is for my going away party. Everybody was uh-huh. going to these socks and they had ordered them. And what happened was they didn't arrive until after I had left. <laughs> so they were just sitting there. And so I said, well, ask them if they need them. I can't imagine anybody has any need for these things. You know, instead of throwing them out, can you ship them to me? And then I, I, put it up on Instagram and Facebook. And I told anybody, if you want a pair, let me know and I'll shoot them to you. So they went very quickly. I was really surprised like, who in the world is going to want these, but it's just goofy enough that people love it. So. And that turned into Socktober and it was like, where's Waldo and Elf on a Shelf meme for a while. Yes. It made me very happy. So I want to end with a quote from an NPR story that was on all things considered about happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that they were singing off of your song sheet, Jarl. The story said that if people could change one thing in their lives to be happier, what does the data say they should choose? They should invest in their relationships with other people. You've made me very happy for joining me and for being such a bar raising human in my life who's made so many people happy and I want to really thank you for sharing with all of us today Evie thank you it's made me happy being here with you Evie Yarl it's quite a living Evie it's quite a life please make sure that you check the show notes out there's information about foster care about Yarl's investments in art about land and LA artists and I would love for you to support your NPR stations that's a really good idea Well, I really want to thank you for listening, for sharing, and for following It's Quite a Living, and hopefully telling your friends about it and sharing it with them, because after all, this is just a conversation with friends. If you'd like to support the arts and keep It's Quite a Living going, feel free to visit buymeacoffee.com slash mossappeal. My theme music was composed by Mark Blatt, who's also featured in It's Quite a Living. Thanks so much for listening. I'm E.B. Moss.